So our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter uh, 23. We are almost done with 2 Samuel now. If you're using one of the black Bibles that are on the chairs, you will find the passage uh, beginning on page 276. At Hope of Christ, especially when we're in the Old Testament, you will hear us refer to this Hebrew word frequently, uh, chesed. And chesed, we, we refer to it in the Hebrew because it's a tricky word to translate into English. There's, there's a lot of nuance in the word and different, and you'll find in different English Bible translations, different ways that they try to convey uh, the, the depth of this Hebrew word. So some English Bibles will, will, call, will translate it as loving kindness, uh, or the, the, the Bible that we use calls it steadfast love, which, uh, in fact, if you look at our, the last verse in our call to worship, uh, it ends with, uh, for the Lord is good, His steadfast love, His hesed, endures forever his faithfulness to all generations. You know, it conveys this idea of, of loving devotion, of, um, of mercy and faithfulness. Uh, it's, and so we usually read it in association with God's feeling or God's relationship with his people. So God has chesed toward his people. He has steadfast love. He has has a loving devotion toward his people. But you can also see that word on display in, in our relationships. Certainly, there's a sense in which we, in our relationship to God, have a certain chesed. We ought to have a loving devotion to God. There ought to be a sense that we have a steadfast love for God, not in a sense that we're going to earn his favor, but because he has shown that kind of love for us first, what else could we offer back but the same kind of love? The same is true for our relationships with each other. So it's appropriate to say that a husband and wife would have chesed for each other. They would have uh, loving devotion. They would be loyal. They would be totally committed to one another. There would be steadfast love for each other. And then although this passage that we're about to read never uses the word chesed, it is a display of the type of loyal, loving devotion that David's men, or a few of David's men, had toward David as their anointed king. And so what we'll see is a display of hesed in action, even as the word itself isn't necessarily used. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. 2 Samuel chapter 23, beginning in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. 
And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, son of Aji, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the, the son of Dodo, of Bethlehem. Shammah, of Herod. Elika, of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ahohite. Maharai, of Netophah. Heleb, the son of Baana, of Netophah. Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Beniah of Pirathon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, Abi Albon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Bahurim, Eliahba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah the Hararite, Ahiam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, 
Naharai of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeroiah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So at the very least, I don't want to hear from anyone else that you can't think of a name for your son. Uh, So what do we have here? We've got a few things in the passage, uh, four things we're going to look at. Obviously, each one we can't look at very deeply, but um, some of them might be things that you noticed as we were reading through, if you could get over the names. Uh, Some of the things might have uh, snuck past you. But what we look here, uh, when we look at this passage, we see, uh, first of all, who the real hero is. Uh, We will answer the question, what's, what's with the waste of water? Um, we're going to look at the also-rans, and then finally, uh, things that maybe we'd rather forget but are important to remember. So, uh, so a couple of things, in case there are any, any of you, uh, I have one in my household, if there are any of you counters out there, and I don't mean like counters, but like count, like you know how many, like if there's lights up for Christmas, you'll know how many lights are in the wreath before the sermon starts, all those things. So counters, before you get itchy or antsy, I will confess to you, it's hard to get to 37. It's hard to even know why there are 37 when the group is called 30. So uh, there, it's easy. There's the, the three mighty men. That's easy because there's three. And so, but there seem to be two groups, the three mighty men. And then the 30. The 30 is more of a title than a count. So the easiest illustration of this is that I I grew up in Ohio. And in Ohio, we know of the Big Ten Conference. Right? The Big Ten. Ohio State is part of it. All of my days growing up, the Big Ten had, that's right, 10 colleges. Strange, I know. But they were called the Big Ten. They had 10 colleges. In 1990, they added Penn State. Penn State was an independent college for all the years of my growing up. That's why when they won championships, they had to play like the Fiesta Bowls and things because they weren't allowed to go to the Rose Bowl. Anyway, uh, so in 1990, they had Penn State. So there are now 11 teams, and so they changed the name of the conference? No, it's still the Big Ten. So the Big Ten now has 11 teams. A few years later, they added Nebraska. And so the Big Ten had 12 teams, 12 teams in the Big Ten conference. Today, if you go to the Big Ten website, you will learn that there are 14 teams in the Big Ten conference, which is just weird. Well, that's what we have here. David's 30 men is just a title. Like, maybe at one time there were 30, but as men would die or other men would be added, the, the numbers would swell or shrink. Uh, the list in First Chronicles uh, is probably a later list than the list we have here. And so in that list, like, more names are added at the end. But so he, and the author even tells you there's 37 of David's 30 men. So 
Now with that, we can just kind of skip over that. You don't have to count. Now you're now most of you are thinking, I'm going to count. I want to see this. Because then it's started like, is the, the sons of Jason, are they one guy? Are they two guys? What? I don't Anyway, so I counted for a long time and finally gave up. So what we have here uh, is a list, some actions. Uh, first, the actions of the three uh, named, uh, the big three, the three mighty men. Uh, Joshib, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shammah. And, uh, and again, there's not a stronger name than p- perhaps Joshib, Bashabeth. So I just, as you're, as you're thinking about naming your sons, go for it. Or Jobas, as his friends knew him. So Jobas was the leader uh, of, the, of the three. Uh, apparently, he, uh, he defeated 800 Philistines. You know, whether it he actually himself defeated all 800 or he led a small contingent to, to defeat the 800. Still, it's a, it's a feat worth noting. Eleazar fought so long and valiantly that we're told that his hand froze to his sword. And so, you know, you've worked on projects. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. You've working on something so long that you have to, like, pry your fingers off the hammer or off the drill uh, so he fought so valiantly that his hand was frozen shut around his sword. It was a time not only that he fought valiantly, but it was a time that the rest of Israel is listed as having fled from the battle. And so he stayed with David and perhaps a few others. And then Shammah, uh, again, he also, when others fled, he stood his ground and protected a plot of lentils so that the lentil soup and the barley season would be protected. And so uh, we just see the list of these three. But at least in Eleazar and Shema's cases, uh, the author wants to make sure that you understand that as valiant as these men's actions were, the true hero is the Lord. Because the only reason these men were even able to do anything that they did is because the Lord was with them and because the Lord acted on their behalf. In fact, twice in the passage we're told the Lord worked a great victory and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And so even as these, this list extols the bravery of these men who rose to be numbered among David's most elite and loyal men, men who were uh, devoted to David. The author begins by making sure that before you hear anything more, what you need to hear is that the Lord was with them. It was the Lord who worked these great victories for them. More important than these men's loyalty to David was the Lord's loyalty to his people. It's important for us to realize this because we are still called on to take part in the work that God is doing. We are still God's covenant people. We are still uh, recipients of his devoted uh, love to us, and it ought to move us. We ought to ask ourselves, like, am I willing to be an instrument in God's hand in expanding and advancing His work in the, His kingdom? You know, I think it's good for us to hear some of the words even of Moriah when he was speaking to, uh, or Mordecai, excuse me, speaking to Esther as she was hesitant about what she should do with the king in Persia who could 
have her killed if she came into his presence before he invited her. And her, her uncle Mordecai, uh, because the, the future of the Israel race was on the line. And you remember Mordecai said to her, listen, God's people will be delivered. Make no mistake. But if you aren't willing to be used by God, like, who knows but that you were born for such a time as this. He says, God will protect his people. Don't think that you will get out of dying, though, just because you were too afraid to be used by God. Like, God, we can either be instruments in God's hands, or we can be like the rest of the Israelites who flee and just have to get to hear about all that God has done to bring about his victories. But it is still God's victory. It is still God who gets the glory. We just have the privilege of taking part in it and being used by God. It's sort of like when you stop at the gas station when you have little kids. And have you ever done this? Like you say to your son or your daughter, hey, do you want to help me pump gas? And they're so excited. They're like, is that a thing? Am I allowed? This is so, this is, I feel like I've become an adult now. And you, they come out and like their little tiny hand and the gas pump. And you're like, they, their fingers aren't even wide enough to get to both pieces of the gas handle. And so you get their hand onto the handle, and then you put your hand around their hand, and you squeeze. And you don't crush their little fingers, but you've got the gas pump held tightly, and they've got the gas pump held tightly, and they're just beaming. They're so proud. Look what I did. I pumped the gas for Daddy. This is what you're invited to do when God says, hey, there are things we're going to do. Do you want to help? We should say, yeah, that'd be exciting. And then recognize Oh, God, you did that. This is great. God is the true hero in this passage, and we need to not miss that. But second, we see this this passage, this strange story. It's even anonymous. We don't even know. Even in 1 Chronicles, we don't know who these three men were that did this uh, great feat for David. So devoted to David are they that they, they break through the Philistine line, and they take water, not just from any well, but water from the well at the gate in Bethlehem and bring it back to David, all because they overhear David longing for the water from Bethlehem. Now, this isn't, this isn't David being some kind of high-maintenance prima donna. Oh, water. Oh, you think your water's good. You haven't lived till you've had the water from Bethlehem. Oh, it's so good. Oh, this water, this is awful. <laughs> I'm, I'm more thirsty when I drink this water. You should drink the water from... No, this is just David longing for days of peace, longing to be back in his hometown without the enemies of God ruining everything. He, he misses the shalom that God had promised for the promised land. And so these three men, they overhear this, and they, they, their love for David is such that they think, well, let's get him some of this water. And so they break in, they fill a canteen, they bring it back. And David refuses to drink it. And he doesn't just refuse to drink it, he pours it out on the ground. Sometimes the only way to honor noble acts is to worship God. The greatest honor David could pay to these three men was to worship God for 
their actions. For David to drink the water actually belittles the action of these men. Because he, David knows that in himself, he is not worthy of that kind of devotion. David is not worthy of that kind of chesed. The only person worthy of that kind of I would die for you uh, commitment is the Lord. And so David does the only appropriate thing that would honor both the men's willingness to sacrifice and the one for whom they should be willing to sacrifice. He pours it out as an offering to God. It is a drink offering to God who refuses to drink it. He recognizes that to drink this water is to drink the very blood of the men who were willing to sacrifice for their king. And so when we see it that way, it's hard for us because in our American minds, we just think, oh, well, what a waste of water. How, how could they do that? And, and isn't it, it's actually, as you look at it, it's, it really is the most beautiful thing David could do. It's the only way to honor their sacrifices. And so we finally come to the, the great big list of names. You know, often in a marathon or in any kind of competitive race, whether it's people or dogs or horses, uh, the three top finishers are the only ones that get the money. And then maybe they'll let you know who some of the others were. Uh, and then if they list everyone else's name, they're called also-rans, because in the paper it'll say, it'll have a list of names, also-ran. Like, also-ran were these guys. And so that's become the kind of a phrase, like, oh, he's an also-ran. Like, I mean, they competed, but... Nobody's going to ever know. So uh, is that what we have here? Is this just a list of also-rans uh, from verses 18 to 39? A couple of honorable mentions, and then just a bunch of guys and who their dads were. So Abishai is Joab's brother. We've met him on occasion throughout 2 Samuel already. Benaiah, uh, Abishai and Benaiah. Abishai kills 300 men uh, with a spear. Benaiah, we're told, he kills a couple of Moab champions. Uh, he killed a lion in a pit on a day that it snowed. Uh, so there's some interesting details for you. Uh, so, you know, people can talk. Like, Israel is not a place that it snows a whole lot. So those are days that you remember. So you'd be talking, hey, do you remember that day it snowed? And you're like, yeah. Hey, wasn't that the day that, like, Benaiah killed a lion in uh, in a pit, like went into the pit and killed a lion. That's crazy. He's like, yeah, that's Benaiah. Yeah, he's the guy that killed that handsome Egyptian. He's like, handsome Egyptian? It's not that he was handsome. He was, he was tall. He was just a, an Egyptian of good stature. He was like seven and a half. He was like five cubits high. He was like five cubits tall. That's what he was. He wasn't handsome. Look, whatever. So he was like seven and a half feet tall. Look, I don't know what feet are, but I'm telling you, he was five cubits tall. He had a spear and Benaiah just had a club, and he went down and he took the dude's spear, stabbed him with his own spear. That Benaiah, you don't mess with Benaiah, especially if your name is Ariel from Moab. He'll kill you just as quickly. So what is going on with all of these? I mean, at least with those two, you get a little bit of excitement still. I do like that it told well, they didn't really rise to the level of the three, but David put them in charge of some things. But then the rest of these, why does the Bible like lists of names so much? 
Like if you read through the Bible in a year, don't you notice that? It feels like, even though it's not very often, when you get to those sections, you're like, oh my goodness, more names. What is the purpose of this? So I have a DVD at home. Uh, It's probably over two hours long. Uh, It's not professionally made. Uh, It's a camera that sits stationary, and it videos an interview. And the interviewer's never on the camera, and the camera's just always sitting there on the guy that's being interviewed. And he just shares for two and a half hours uh, how he got into the Army, um, his time in the Army, including his time in Vietnam, and then how and why he left the army, and then just kind of back and forth, talk to him a little bit about his dad's time at World War II and stuff. And um, for most people, a two-and-a-half-hour video just stationary, talking to some 70-plus-year-old man, it's got to be, I'm sure it is, just an insanely boring thing to have to watch. Maybe some of you with military background, you would appreciate some of the things and the stories that he told. For me, I cannot get enough of it. I could watch it over and over and over because it's my dad being interviewed and he is telling stories that he has never told any of us as kids because they just he was of that generation that those stories just didn't get told. We read these lists of names and forget that, you know, we're kind of late to the party of enjoying the Bible. Like, this was written a long time ago, and some people who read these or heard them read would have said, that's your grandfather. That was your great-grandfather who was one of David's mighty men. That was, we, we knew this guy. We know this guy. This, pers- this, this, this is a name that actually means something to us. This is a person. It's, a, it's an actual individual who did these things, and it's important for us to remember them. Lists of God's people and their, their steadfast devotion. These, these things happen throughout Scripture, even, even in the New Testament. You know, Paul does this. Some people are like the three mighty men. Like he'll give like full on accolades of people who have helped, who have been important to the advancing of the gospel. He speaks of Epaphras in Colossians 4, who was essential to the ministry over Aquila and Priscilla in Romans 16. These folks, he tells about their very deeds. Other places, you just, you just get a name. You learn of Mary, greet Mary, or Rufus in Romans 16. And then there's others in Colossians 4 and 2 Timothy 1 and Philippians 2. And it's right to recall these names to one another of people who have been important. It's right to have lists of names. It's right to remember people that have been used by God who were, who were loyally devoted, who, were, who had steadfast love for God, and it impacted you in your life. I'm a Midwesterner, and so many people say that, like, I'm loyal to a fault. Like, we don't, like, change is the most evil thing in the world, and so you just stick with it. But sometimes that's a positive thing. I've had three pastors my whole life. Unless you count my youth pastor, which you should, because then I've had four. But I, in Cleveland, I grew up and stayed in one church. Born, raised, 18 years, and my pastor 
for the most part, was uh, Ralph Burns, amazingly godly man. I don't have time to tell you stories about just his kindness to me personally. And, uh, and then the youth pastor through my middle and high school years, the man who would uh, perform Amy and My Wedding, Dan Chittick. But then we moved to Baltimore. And Baltimore, I was in one church in Baltimore. And my pastor there was T.M. Moore, just a faithful man. And he started planting in my head that maybe going to seminary wasn't a weird thing that only the uber-holy people do. And then we moved to Raleigh, and Terry Trailer, who I've probably talked about too much, especially in personal conversations, but my mentor and best friend for 12 years, he was my pastor the whole time I was in Raleigh, save the last two years that I was in Raleigh. But I've had three pastors, and, it's, and, and the fourth, the, the, the youth pastor, But it's good for us to remember the people that God has used in our lives. And do we look at it and say, like in some kind of fatalistic, boy, if that guy wasn't there, I don't know where I'd be. Well, certainly that's true. And yet we look at it and we say, actually, I do know where I'd be because the Lord is the one who has worked all these victories. So God would have had me probably here doing this, and I just wouldn't have those same names. But God is faithful regardless of our faithfulness, but isn't it wonderful to know, to look back and say, look how God has used men and women in your life and to have lists of those names and to honor them with the honor that is due them. Which brings us to this sort of last one. Anyone get a little (gasps) on the last name in the passage? Or hear the little dun, 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 dun. Uriah the Hittite. The list ends with sort of a gut check. Uriah the Hittite. So if you don't know, Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah, David set up Uriah to die in battle to cover David's sin. Here's the name of one who was loyal, who was steadfastly devoted to his king, who was not steadfastly devoted to him. He had chesed for his king, but in a moment of wicked selfishness and blind hubris, his king did not returned that devotion. It it ought to be shocking to us. This man is on the list of names of men who would willingly die for their king, and it is exactly what this man's king set up for him to do, to die in his place. What are we supposed to do with this? Are we to stop here? Is this, is the writer saying, so, you know, never forget, like, hey, you know, we got to wallow in David's sin and in, in what has happened here. Are we never allowed to forget? Are we never allowed to move on? And in one sense, I would say no. No, we're, we shouldn't just forget and move on. 
Because it's as if the, the author is reminding us uh, of things that we'd rather forget, but that we should remember. That we need a greater king than David. Even David needed a greater king. Everyone on this list, they're great men, including David. They've done great deeds. But they were all great sinners. The people on your list, they were still sinners in need of God's grace. You, you who may be on some people's lists, but you who also, I heard this once and it kind of makes you shudder, but then you think about it, it's probably true. Like, do you know that everyone's the villain of someone else's story? Like, someone has a story and you're not the good guy in it. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't like that idea at all. What do we do with that? We need God's mercy. We all have gut check memories in our lives, things that we wish we could go back and change, things that you, like, they shake you awake at night or cause you to shudder when the the memory comes back. But what if gospel moving forward isn't about moving on? What if gospel moving forward is actually saying, yeah, I am that sinner, And by God's grace, I've been forgiven. Maybe the times that you are in the dark or laying in bed and like those memories of those awful things that you just wish you could change when those come back, they're there to like through the tears to clear your vision, to see the cross that much clearer, to be reminded Jesus took this, this sin, this shame, this thing I just can't forget, and he willingly died and he shed his blood and his blood became the drink that would satisfy my soul his blood was poured out not some loyal person's blood for him but Jesus himself in the face of my disloyalty he broke through the enemy lines he died on my behalf we drink his blood and are reminded I've been saved by grace I am washed I am cleansed I'm forgiven Satan, you have no hold on me. This sin doesn't have any hold on me. God will use this sin in my life to help me remember and see that God's grace is not in vain. This is the beauty of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15. It's this, we, we remember most of it because it's this, this gospel statement of like the historical truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection. But we forget how deep into that story Paul goes because he follows the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just to some historical theological truth, but to a personal truth that Jesus isn't just alive in general. Jesus is alive for me, Paul says. He says, listen, I... I I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who didn't even believe in him most of the time he was on earth. 
Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And listen to Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. When we look at those things and we see the things that we've done to others, the things that we've just, oh, if we could have that conversation back, if we could have that moment back, oh, if I could just undo it, it's better than undone. It's washed and cleansed and forgiven. And by the grace of God, you are what you are. That's a great promise Cling to that. Memorize that. Write that at the top of all of your calendars. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace is not in vain. We are forgiven. It's good for us to remember so that we can remember what we've been forgiven. And what a great gift that the God of the universe, who never forgets, chooses to forget. Casts your sin away from you. Chooses to no longer recall your sin does not count your sin against you so that when we see our sin it's either satan trying to shame you or the holy spirit simply reminding you to give praise to god to pour out your offering to god for the grace that you've received let's pray god we praise you and thank you that uh, your grace is never in vain god would you give us Uh, hearts of gratitude that would go to the people that you've put in our lives and thank them and praise them for their loyal devotion to you that has impacted us. And God, may we just worship you humbly when we see all the people that you've put in our lives, when we see the devotion of so many to you parents or grandparents or siblings or co-workers or fellow students, folks who would be willing to come and speak to us of the grace of God. And God, remind us that it is by your grace alone that we are what we are. And when we are filled with shame and regret and just despise the things of ourselves and our past, would you remind us again that your grace is never in vain. In Jesus' name, amen.